Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Sunny skies. Welcome to this Tuesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, we'll get reaction to a federal judge's ruling regarding a Georgia law that would have banned most abortions as early as six weeks of pregnancy. Judge Steve Jones ruled the law is unconstitutional. We'll speak with proponents and opponents of the law. But now, a look at Georgia's coronavirus numbers. The Georgia Department of Public Health reports there are 120,569 confirmed COVID-19 cases throughout the state. The number of COVID-19-related deaths in Georgia is 3,026 at the time of this broadcast, and there are 13,476 hospitalized. Of that number, more than 2,600 are ICU admissions. Of course, all this is according to the Georgia Department of Health. In related news, as those COVID-19 cases continue to surge in the state, area school districts are either preparing or trying to prepare for the start of school. Atlanta Public School Superintendent Dr. Lisa Herring is recommending the school board vote to push back in-class instruction. We need to take the utmost of caution and do what's best for our students and for our community. And that's why we're recommending the decision to delay an in-person return to our schools in this fall and reopen for virtual learning on August 24, 2020. Our recommendation is consistent with what we're seeing in the city of Atlanta right now. The city has moved back to stage one of their recovery process in light of the COVID-19 trajectory. And Fulton County has pulled back to stage one of recovery as well. We have to pull back and do what's in the best interest of our students and our staff. The APS board will vote on August 3rd. Now to the other big news here in Georgia. As mentioned, a federal judge ruling the state's law that would have banned most abort that would have banned most abortions as early as six weeks of pregnancy is unconstitutional. Judge Steve Jones ruling yesterday permanently blocks the law. Judge Jones cited the law, quote, directly conflicts with previous U.S. Supreme Court decisions in cases such as Roe versus Wade that provide women access to abortions. Georgia Republican and State Representative Ed Sessler was the sponsor of the state's initial measure, House Bill 481, and he joined me earlier today. You know, it was just about a year, over a year ago that HB 481 passed, was signed by Governor Kemp. But in October of last year, this very same judge, Steve Jones, temporarily blocked the law from taking effect while it was being challenged in court, as you know. Now, it's not nearly 100%, but the odds always tend to favor a similar ruling in these types of cases. But were you optimistic that it would be, the ruling would go in you and their fellow proponents' favor? Well, you know, Rose, I believe in the end it will. You know, when you look at the LIFE Act, the Living Infants Fairness and Equality Act that Georgia passed, that was fundamentally different than every other heartbeat bill in the nation because Georgia established the legal personhood of the unborn child in passing it. 
there was a lot of things outside of only the abortion context that, uh, that were part of it. You know, the Life Act provided that, that you know, child support could be provided to pregnant moms who, in ways that could never be provided before. It provided that you know, children in utero would be counted as, as persons in hospital accounts. And it provided civil recovery to parents who lost children in utero, and it provided tax deduction for moms and dads who were, who were ex expecting a child. All those things with a Life Act are clearly within the realm of the General Assembly's authority to put in place, and those things will undoubtedly be up. I think they'll, I think they'll be reversed by the next court. I think Judge Jones likely should have upheld those, but I do believe that the, the abortion question will likely have to be settled by the United States Supreme Court because of the precedents that are in place that precede the Life Act. And, you know, given the abortion ban in Tennessee that was blocked yesterday as well. You mentioned Supreme Court, which struck down a Louisiana law that would have required abortion doctors to have admitting privileges at nearby hospitals. So given the trend, not just here recently, but the trend within the last year or so, you still hold out that the Supreme Court will ultimately make a decision that will be in your favor, something that you all have been pushing for for so long. Yeah, it, it's interesting, Rose, that the people that uh, on both sides of this question recognize that the Life Act is fundamentally different than these other other propositions. Mm -hmm. I don't expect an Obama-appointed uh, district court judge to, to side with us on every part of this bill, but I do believe it sets the foundation for the appellate courts to see this question we put before, really put in place for the first time ever, which is a state established the full legal personhood of an unborn child. That's never been done before. And candidly, when you read the Roe versus Wade opinion itself, Roe itself says if any state establishes the legal personhood of the unborn child, the abortion argument collapses because that child gets equal protections under the 14th Amendment of the United States Constitution. I don't know that uh, Judge Jones saw it within his province to make that call as a district judge, but I believe that will be addressed by our federal courts on appeal. I think that question will go our way. But at issue, and Representative Setzler, you know this, the complexity of defining personhood. Now, Judge Jones cited the court finds personhood definition, which by its own terms, person or human being, he said was unconstitutionally vague. So as defendants in this case, and through Judge Jones's lens, you all could not define personhood or have a scientific basis to support it. Yeah, it's very, very interesting, Rose. You know, when you when you look at the the, I wish everyone could have listened to the debate in the case, because within the corners of this bill, the definitions of personhood that affect this bill were very clearly defined. The, the void for vagueness was an argument was, I think, was a tortured kind of finding that he landed on, so that he could strike down the entire law. It was interesting during the debate, he was almost coaching out of the plaintiff's counsel this issue of vagueness, which seemed to be the direction. It, it almost seemed like a coach pitch game that, that it was sort of coaching out of the, the, the plaintiff's counsel this, this vagueness challenge um, to land where we landed. But I think the appellate courts will see very clearly it's within the province of the General Assembly, clearly, to give an exemption to a child that's in utero. It's clearly within of a general assembly to give mothers access to child support for a living distinct child growing inside of them from a, from a deadbeat dad that doesn't want to pay. That's in, that's really irrefutable legally. And I think that's going to be overturned on appeal in this, really in this next court change. Well, it, just in language alone, Representative Settler, because just in what you just said, you referred to someone as being a deadbeat dad. I, I think a lot of folks probably 
take issue with how language is being used, whether it's on either side. But at issue also is that the notion that Georgia's law would have banned most abortions once there was a detection of fetal cardiac activity or around six weeks of pregnancy, that was the core of the law. So if this continues on in the courts, how will you all improve in defending this law regarding fetal cardiac activity and does that definitely define personhood and therefore should ban abortions? Because now the onus is still on you all to prove your point, your standing. Yeah. I think it's a great question. You know, it's interesting that quoting you know, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, you know, the arc of the moral universe is long and slow, but it bends towards justice. And we see in the, as, as our nation over the last 240 years has sought to become a more perfect union. You know, it took us 75 years in a brutal war to give full access to African-Americans as human beings. And as we've seen through Jim Crow. Well, one might argue it's still taking a long time. <laughs> th th thank you. That, that's where I was going. And through Jim Crow and the ensuing you know, 125 years, that's, that's been a, an evolving process. This question before us, though, is living distinct whole human beings inside of their mothers. You know, the tortured language of fetal cardiac activity, the tortured language of defining things as embryos versus persons. You know, it's interesting. If you look at an at at a ultrasound, of a children of a child in utero that's eight nine weeks long, you ask a group of first graders to look at a 40 ultrasound, and you say, "What are you looking at?" That group of first graders say, "That's a baby," because they know it's a baby. It has its own heartbeat, it has its own blood type, it has its own DNA. All it needs is a safe place to live and nutrition. It's going to grow to a ripe old age. It's going to be older than you and me, Rose, someday. Um, so, by the way, for, for listeners, Rose and I are almost exactly the same age. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for putting that out there. Uh, <laughs> she, she carries her, her years way more gracefully than I. <laughs> um, but having said that, Rose, I mean, the, the, the idea of the, that it's a living distinct member of the human community is irrefutable. And just like, you know, but the, the courts don't see it that way, Representative Setzler. So again, when you're talking about a court of law, the onus is on you and you all as defendants in this case, if it goes on to another court, you will have to prove, you have to defend what we've just been talking about in terms of not just the definition of personhood, but also with fetal cardiac activity being a metric to ban abortions. You know, Rose, it's interesting. I think if, if you ask the listeners to your broadcast right now, um, if something is handed down by the United States Supreme Court that comes in attention with another law, it's really only the United States Supreme Court that can address that. You know, that a district judge in Atlanta is going to change something like the Casey decision or, or, or fit something into the context of the existing Roe decision, that's not going to happen at the district court level. That's only going to happen at the United States Supreme Court level. What I expect to happen is I expect Judge Jones's order with respect to the health care provisions, with respect to the tax provisions, the hospital headcounts, the thing, the practical things that are clearly within the province of General Assembly, I expect the district court to reverse Judge Jones and allow those things to go into effect as they should now. I think the abortion provision does create tension versus Roe and Casey. I think only the United States Supreme Court can really address that. But I think the legal team we have in place, the arguments we've made, and the fact that the Life Act itself was crafted to answer the question of personhood that Roe v. Wade asks, puts us in a unique place. Not just in my opinion, but even uh, if we go back, uh, even Kathy Woolard, who's a well-known progressive leader in Atlanta, 
uh, was on the Georgia gang several months ago that said the Georgia abortion law is fundamentally different because the personhood question. People on both sides of this question recognize that. And um, I think being different doesn't mean that it's going to automatically mean it stands up. That's, that's correct. It's, it's going to come down to the, the recognition that do the judges in the U.S. Supreme Court recognize states' ability to recognize rights more expansively than other states? Mm-hmm. Yes, they have. States can recognize fundamental rights more generously than a minimum standard required by Georgia law. And that's what Georgia does. We're being generous to, humans, to you know, human beings in utero than other states are. And I believe that tension is something that uh, the Supreme Court will rule on in a I, I certainly, certainly would hope in a very positive way to expand rights to a group of people that heretofore have not had their rights protected. So you all want this to ultimately make it to the nation's high court. A statement from the governor's office was simple. It was one line and it read, quote, we will appeal the court's decision. Georgia values life and we'll keep fighting for the rights of the unborn. That is encouraging to you to hear from Governor Kemp. Governor Kemp has never wavered on this. I mean, this is a common sense issue, Rose. I mean, when we started this this whole process out, the Life Act really balances the difficult situations women find themselves in and the basic right to life of a living, distinct human being living inside of a mother. You know, it's 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 we we crafted in a way that we believe can be can be consistent with federal and state law. That's we crafted in a way that is is scientifically valid. We crafted in a way that that jives and it's consistent with the common sense of everyday Georgians who know these human lives are worthy of protection. And I think, uh, you know, Governor Kemp is standing behind that common sense approach we've taken as a state that I think we've very thoughtfully proceeded in. And Judge Jones's ruling is really just chapter one, the story that I think is going to fold out in a very, very exciting way to, to expanding rights to an entire class of helpless people who've not had their rights recognized in the past. Georgia Republican and State Representative Ed Setzler. He's a sponsor of the state's initial measure, House Bill 41. Representative Setzler, thanks for taking the time. As always, I really appreciate it. Rose, it's always a pleasure being with you. We now turn to Kwajalein Jackson, Executive Director of the Feminist Women's Health Center here in Atlanta. Ms. Jackson, as always, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Absolutely. The center was among a collective of plaintiffs in this case. How confident were you all in in anticipation of Judge Jones ruling in you all's favor? Honestly, my optimism and confidence was pretty unwavering throughout this litigation. Uh, We had several years of precedent and many other cases that were happening almost simultaneously that had similar results where no gestational ban pre-viability has been allowed to stand. Mm -hmm. And so we trusted in the expertise of the lawyers and um, in the soundness of that precedent. You know, given the recent Supreme Court's ruling striking down a Louisiana law requiring abortion doctors to have admitting privileges in nearby hospitals, and then the decision regarding Tennessee, so all of this coming, you know, around the same time, and then the decision with Georgia's law. What do you make of this? I mean, obviously for you all, this is the pattern that you want to see in these decisions, but what other concerns do you all have? Well, we know that this is not the end of any fight that we're going to have to wage to maintain and ultimately expand access to reproductive health care and ultimately reproductive justice in the places where we serve people. 
we know that while the tactic has um, not proven successful for those who thought they could exploit the courts in their favor, um, we know that there are many other tools and tactics that they might use to continue to restrict away, erode away, um, and put obstacles in the way of people who are trying to get abortion care where they live. So um, I think that what we have to continue to do is uh, treat our patients uh, with the compassionate care that we always have and continue to work collectively across issue uh, with folks who are in Georgia, but also across the country so that we can continue to build the kinds of ecosystems that our patients need. Um, in many cases, we are going to have to work around the obstacles that are being put in our path. So that's the path forward in my estimation. We know that this work is not um, happening in a vacuum. It's happening in a pandemic. It's happening in a in an uprising around racial justice and all of those things we are considering as a part of our fight. Let's talk about this intersection that the nation is currently in with the pandemic and the protests regarding racial justice. And this is an election year as well. And typically, traditionally, women's reproductive issues, abortion issues have always been a part of a huge election season. Are you still paying attention to see what candidates are saying and, and how the two major political parties will use this issue moving forward? Well, as a 501c3 organization, our primary focus is making sure that voters have all of the information and tools they need to be able to make well-informed decisions at the polls. We wanna make sure that we are working on behalf of voting rights, uh, making sure that people have access to the kinds of ballots that they need, whether those are absentee ballots or they're able to vote in person, that there's enough precincts um, and that the voting process allows for as many people as possible to participate. So those are the ways that we have been primarily focused. We know that these issues will continue to be um, used as a tool to um, bat back and forth um, amongst candidates. What we want is to make sure that the voices of people are heard and represented by the people who are called upon to make decisions on their behalf. So we want people to understand how those policymakers are making those decisions and how they can both cast their vote to make sure that the person they want is in place and how they can hold that person accountable once they're in office to make sure that their needs are being met. Meanwhile, a statement from the governor's office here in Georgia was simply one line, and it read, quote, we will appeal the court's decision, Georgia values life, and we will keep fighting for the rights of the unborn, close quote. That is that continuing fight that you just talked about that you all see ahead. Yeah, and I mean, the only thing that I find, not the only thing, but one of the things that I find disappointing about that is that the governor would choose at this time where so many people are struggling to make ends meet, so many people are being faced with hardships that they've never experienced before, where the health and safety of so many is um, so fragile that this feels like the best use of the state's resources to continue um, what may be a fruitless um, pursuit of an unconstitutional law. 
Meanwhile, Kwajalein, there at the center, you all have remained open during this pandemic. How have you been able to do this? How are you all doing? Well, we've made a lot of um, changes in order to preserve the safety and well-being of both our patients and our staff. Um, so we have limited the amount of patients that we can take at any given time so that we can observe social distancing, um, so that people are not contained in small spaces in large crowds. We have um, nearly tripled um, the PPE that we've um, purchased for, so that we can make sure that everyone has a mask, whether they bring one from home or not, mm -hmm. um, so that we can increase our sanitation um, and disinfection um, proceedings from our, our cleaning crew. Um, we just want to make sure that we can um, mitigate the risk as much as possible while also understanding that abortion care is urgent um, and essential health care. And so we don't want our communities to go without that care. So it has been a balancing act for sure. Um, but I'm extremely proud of the folks who um, come into work every day. Um, we have been instituted HR policies to make sure that folks are appropriately compensated um, with hazard pay on top of their regular salaries so that we can acknowledge the fact that they are um, putting themselves at some risk in order to make sure our communities are cared for. You all also provide other resources for women as well, correct? Other than abortion services? We do. So we have been um, creative about how we're able to continue to treat our, treat our wellness patients. Um, incorporating uh, telemedicine when it's possible to make sure that people's prescriptions are refilled um, and that we can do some diagnostic care remotely. Again, trying to limit the number of people who are in the building at any given time, um, but trying to have as few interruptions in needed and necessary care. But one of the things that we've been able to do on the ground is also shift our outreach so that we can meet the needs of our community members. So folks who are having trouble paying rent or paying utilities, folks who are in need of um, support for food, we have been able to shift some of our resources to make sure that the communities we serve have their basic needs met. Recently, before the session ended, when they came back into the session, state lawmakers did pass a measure that some will see could be helpful in reducing Georgia's maternal mortality rate. How do you see that measure moving forward in terms of being able to make a significant impact on reducing that tragic number here in Georgia? Well, we're grateful that um, lawmakers chose to move forward the legislation that would extend um, Medicaid for pregnant women mm -hmm. um, to six months postpartum as opposed to 60 days. Mm -hmm. um, while we do think that that is a move in the right direction, um, we are hopeful that this is just the beginning of some of the interventions that the state can make. Um, you know, one other choice that could be made is to extend Medicaid for everyone um, so that people can have access to healthcare coverage um, regardless of their pregnancy status, mm -hmm. um, so that we could have the ability for folks to deal with chronic conditions um, that might precipitate a pregnancy and their ability to survive that. Um, and, you know, while originally there was some desire to have pregnancy, um, Medicaid for pregnant women extended to a year postpartum, um, that wasn't what we were able to get. But um, again, 
advocates are working tirelessly to continue to raise the issue of not only the, the, the really dire situation, but specifically the racial disparity so that we can have more specifically focused legislation that would assist in black women in Georgia being able to have healthy pregnancy outcomes. Kwajalein Jackson, Executive Director of the Feminist Women's Health Center. Thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Absolutely my pleasure. Thank you. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Two Georgia institutions of higher education are partnering together to help support economic growth in Atlanta's West End neighborhood. Now, the two institutions that I'm talking about, Morehouse College and the University of Georgia. Now, this partnership means that the University of Georgia Small Business Development Center, also known as UGA SBDC, will open a new office on the campus of Morehouse College. And joining me now to talk about all of this is Dr. Tiffany Bussey, director of the Morehouse Innovation and Entrepreneurship Center. She's been on the program before. And Alan Adams, state director at the University of Georgia Small Business Development Center. Tiffany and Alan, thank you both for taking the time. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And Tiffany, I remember last time when we were having a conversation about entrepreneurship and all that, no one seemed excited about me starting a business that would benefit cats and cat owners. Do you still have that same thought that that's just not a business to start right now? Actually, Rose, I think you were ahead of the curve. (laughs) (laughs) I really think anything to do with pets is really um, on point right about now. um, You know, if I shared negative feelings towards that, I'm going to reverse that. I think um, you you were on point. So this is a time. This is a perfect time. This is a good time to start a business, um, any business, I would say right now, and especially with having to do with pets. Let's talk about that because let's start with this. And Alan, you can come in on this too because someone listening says we're in a pandemic right now is this really the best time to even start thinking about starting a business you know maybe just the concept is fine but to really try to go out and start a business what do you think tiffany Uh, Like I said, I think this is a perfect time. The way we teach entrepreneurship and look at businesses is about looking at opportunities, right? And these times have presented some very challenging opportunities for us. And there are many solutions, I'm quite sure, that we can answer with those opportunities and start a business that makes sense to solve those particular problems. So, yes, I, I really think this is a good time. So looking at this crisis and seeing what needs may not be met and also turn that into some type of entrepreneurial adventure for someone. That's what you're saying? That's exactly what I'm saying, that uh, opportunities are here. There's um, lots of capital, more capital that's being offered. So, yes, very good time. Alan, I I mean, I'm quite sure you're seeing the same from the small business development. That was my next go-to. Alan, what do you think? 
Sure. E e even in the worst economy, people are still consuming and have needs. And Tiffany's Tiffany's right about the, the, the a pet related business. It could be a very good time because people are home all day with their pets now, which oftentimes they're not. So they're much more attentive. And I think uh, uh, many veterinarians will tell you their their businesses are running really strong right now because mm -hmm. people are paying more attention to their pets. So it, it can depend on the on the on the type of business and the timing. But even in a bad economy, there are opportunities for people to to take advantage of. Alan, let me stay with you for a moment because you you're talking about even in a bad economy, there are opportunities. You look at the Great Recession back of 2008 and, you know, big businesses were able to bounce back. We saw the technology field obviously explode as well. Is there an industry that you think right now is is probably that industry or that area or that sector that, you know, might be a good venture for someone in terms of uh, being an entrepreneur in? Well, there's some things like medical related that a lot of people are have expanded existing businesses into, take advantage of producing things relative to the medical field, but sometimes that can be expensive to get into. Mm -hmm. But there can be personal services, which are oftentimes lower cost businesses to get into that people can can look at um, that, that, that starting at a time like this mm -hmm. when you don't have a lot of cash um, or something that doesn't require a lot of equipment and overhead to get involved in. What do you think, Tiffany? And, and Rose, if I might, I, I will, I'll add that what we're seeing is um, cleaning services, right? Um, mm -hmm. But we have to be able to um, become compliant with COVID. We had three of our um, small businesses just formed a joint venture with a solution to, to address that. And how do we reopen? How will schools reopen? Mm -hmm. um, and so they, and they're doing very well. Consumer packaged goods. Um, we saw the lack of the rush for toilet papers and cleaning supplies and things like that. So, uh, so being a part of supply chains of these consumables, uh, such as with Kroger and Publix and others, um, the businesses in those areas are doing very, very well in, in this particular time. And so let's, before we get into your partnership, let's give our listeners a little backstory on your each individual uh, areas that you come out of. Tiffany, the Morehouse Innovation and Entrepreneurship Center, for our listeners who are not familiar, take them through what you sure. all do. Thank you. So, uh, Rose, um, the center was started about 17 years ago, and we like to say we service two sets of customers, our internal set, which is our students really developing curricula and co-curricula programs, helping our students matriculating through Morehouse to understand what it means to be entrepreneurial, having that entrepreneurial entrepreneurial mindset. And then we have our external set of customers, which is businesses in our community. We actually have a national footprint. We've been uh, developing and being a part of the DOD Mentor Protege Program, where we assist uh, technology growth firms across this country uh, to grow. Um, and now more locally in the past four years, we've assisted about 152 companies right here in Georgia, uh, businesses of color from startups to uh, technology focus to those micro businesses uh, that are in the community and legacy businesses. So we've been at this for quite some time. Um, we're very proud of the work that we've been doing. We've helped companies raise over 5.5 million in, in capital hmm. and have grown about 164 jobs right here in Georgia. So we are very, very proud and ex super excited about this partnership to really complement the things that we've been doing. And Alan, in your role as the state director at UGA at the Small Business Development Center, 
Yeah, the, the SBDC program started at the University of Georgia back in 1977. The mm -hmm. dean of the business school there at the time got very interested in the idea of creating a small business extension program modeled after the successful agriculture extension program that exists nationwide. He became prominent in national academic circles. He used his standing to lobby Congress, et cetera. And in 1980, federal legislation was passed to create an SBDC program. And now it exists in colleges and universities in every state and country. This is a federally funded program? Partially federally mm -hmm. funded. Uh, the, the federal government puts in a portion of money. States have to match it. The lead entity in every state has to be an institution of higher education. So it's really a state-federal partnership, but we do operate under certain federal statutes and regulations about what we do and what we don't do. And you all have more than a dozen locations throughout Georgia, correct? Correct. Most of our locations are just standalone University of Georgia locations, but in a number of instances, um, we are on campus with another school and we contracted that institution to run the program. So the people are employees of that institution, but it, it, it runs as one entity and it, the public comes in any location they go into, they're getting mm -hmm. in the same skill set, same services and access to the whole network. So it seems like a perfect fit between you all and Morehouse College. Yes, we were actually facing a dilemma ourselves about how to uh, provide more resource in the metro Atlanta market, which is so big. We have five other locations, but we didn't feel like we could grow them. And we had begun doing a few little things with, with Tiffany and, and, and the entrepreneurship program at Morehouse. And um, we could not figure out how to do more in Atlanta. And mm -hmm. Finally decided to make some gentle overtures to see if Morehouse might be interested in uh, uh, getting involved in the program. And we had a, a number of great discussions over many months and and we, we both became more convinced it'd be a good fit. So we're, I think we're both really pleased at this point. And Tiffany Morehouse, obviously it's legacy. And then also in a part of town that has that similar legacy. I mean, it, the intersection is historic in a sense. So being able to have this center, when this center does open, the importance of having it at Morehouse, but also to help that side of town, Atlanta's west side. Oh, yes, most definitely. We're super excited about it. I guess as Alan shared, uh, we actually were working together um, a couple years ago. So this is not a brand new partnership. We've been um, doing things in supplementing our programs and incorporating and just collaborating together. So it just made such perfect sense. And we started talking about this. Uh, we're currently hiring for the area director for those listening that is interested. Uh, please do go to the Morehouse College website, www morehouse.edu and look at their open positions. And as soon as we uh, kind of get everyone on board, um, we will be open for business, whether it's virtually or physically, um, we will be um, open. And we're hoping that that will be very, very soon, perhaps um, as early as August. So really, really excited and looking forward to that. And we should and I should know that we are very excited. We're one of the first HBCUs in in Georgia, particularly there are others across the country. But for this relationship and to be at Morehouse, we are very excited about that. Looking forward to some exciting things to happen. 
we all are aware of the tremendous job loss due to the pandemic. And, and now we hear that slowly folks are coming back online in terms of jobs. But, you know, what else is coming out of this is that for many folks, they are not going to return to perhaps some of those frontline or essential jobs that they used to have because of the experience with the pandemic. So you expect to see maybe a spike of people transitioning out of working for someone else for so many years and now trying to take the reins of being an entrepreneur. You all are ready to help someone who's just getting started. Or if someone has been in business for a while, you also can help them too. Yes, and 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 pivot, right? So we are, we're working with those companies or uh, businesses that are looking to, how am I being affected by this pandemic and how do I pivot my business at this point? Really helping them stand up, being able to open back up or change. And for those that you're right, that are about to start. So we see this as a pipeline from the very early startups to the more mature companies. And we have specific programs to meet all of those needs. I am so excited of the resources that the SBDC brings because that enables us to now kind of hook into a more of a national network, if you will, of these specialists that can really season uh, professionals to help these businesses. And that's exactly what we need in terms of coaching and advising and really getting in there and assisting them. So, Alan, based on what Tiffany just said, you all can provide those resources and connections and networking that will be so essential for the folks that are coming through the center. Is each site sort of also catered in its specialties based on the region? Well, certainly some of our offices in South Georgia have people with agriculture expertise, which mm-hmm. is not necessarily as, as, as necessary up, up in Atlanta. But the great thing about our folks is they stay in such close touch that we, we hire people who are business practitioners and we try to turn them into educators and it works pretty good most of the time. But they all have diverse backgrounds, careers, industries. So just within our, our workforce, there's there's a tremendous opportunity for, for, for them to call upon each other for different expertise and help out. And they do, even though they're, they may be located in Brunswick, mm-hmm. They, they're oftentimes cons- consult, supporting the consulting for, for businesses in Atlanta or even in the North Georgia mountains. You know, as the unemployment rate continues to fluctuate, and as we said earlier, more and more people, hey, they will step into the world of entrepreneurship and others will work to maintain their small businesses. So as we wrap up, what are the messages or words of encouragement you all have for these folks? And I'll start with you, Ellen. Yeah, there, there, it's it's amazing how much opportunity can exist. And I do think one of the things we do well is help people before you jump, before you expose yourself financially. Are you thinking through, are you looking at things? We can be a great sounding board to help people calibrate that risk. Mm-hmm. And it may be that you, you go ahead and jump wholesale, or maybe you sort of part-time it and ease into it before you expose yourself too much. But it's just great to have access to professional business expertise that doesn't cost you anything out of pocket. Well, Alan, before I get to Tiffany, let me ask you this. So someone listening says, well, you tell me about research, but how do I, where do I begin to research in my market? And where do I begin to understand whether or not this service or product is even needed? We can have a great idea, but it may not fit this particular market, or perhaps, you know, it, it's, it's a great idea, but it's a daunting task. Where do you begin to tell people to to jump in and, and start researching? 
Well, in our case, certainly if they're, if they're working with us, we have access to all kinds of proprietary marketing databases and we can help people. We can pull data and help them analyze it. There's a lot of web-based tools you can use, but, but getting somebody to help you, what does that information really mean? Mm-hmm. Market data can be misinterpreted. What looks like an opportunity may not be at all. Because Lord knows we don't need another air fryer. <laughs> I'm just saying we don't. Or, There's like 18 of them. They all do the same you, thing. You might though if it does something else. So uh, and Rose really kind of hooking into that uh, last question. I would say that one of the the beauty and the things in in which we teach and the way we teach now is to truly understand your your customer. What problem are you solving? Not all great business ideas make good business sense. Mm -hmm. And so understanding how you really get out there very quickly and see, is this indeed a problem, not only that I'm solving, but that others are willing to pay for. So that Mm -hmm. is really the essence of what, and the beauty of what we um, hope to teach and help folks to kind of coach them through. The earlier you can quickly get out there, iterate that idea, and not only believe it in terms of building building it and they will come, but actually putting a, what we would call an MVP or a, a prototype out there very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. Not, not a whole lot of money, but getting it out there in front of that, who you think that customer will be and truly understanding, does this make sense? Is this something that, that solves a pain point or problem for you and will you pay for it? The quicker you can find it out, the easier it will be to, or at least increase your success in terms of businesses. And that's a new, sort of way of thinking and we have to get that into our communities and address that very quickly with the folks that we're serving well you all just gave some great advice i know someone listening maybe a lot of folks and then they're ready to jump into this so tiffany and alan is there a capacity in terms of the number of people you all can take how do folks start the process all, all they have to do then go on a website or or, or state spdc website find an office location near them give them a call and they can, they can talk to somebody oftentimes same day, just to begin a discussion and see um, what, what, how, what they might want to pursue with us. All right. And, and that's a great point, Rose, because even though we're not officially open at Morehouse, we have all these other 17 centers right mm-hmm. here in Georgia and they can start the process and help facilitate. And of course, when we're up and uh, online, um, we will be, um, hooking into that network but the beauty of it is we can start today um you know go directly to the sbdc website um definitely the morehouse website and we'll have more information coming online for that but um don't hold back not because our center isn't open but the others are there already and we are here ready to serve well perhaps we will inspire some folks dr tiffany bussey director of the morehouse innovation and entrepreneurship center and alan Adams, State Director of the University of Georgia Small Business Development Center. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Good information. I'm pretty sure some of our listeners have some great ideas and some great business minds, so let's help them. Thank you, Rose. Thanks for having us. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, it has not been business as usual for many businesses, especially small businesses, taking huge losses and profits and, quite frankly, 
many struggling to stay afloat. Now, in the previous segment, we just talked about a new entrepreneurial center at Morehouse College. So let's head up north, up I-85, to Gwinnett County, where there's a new program. It's called the Gwinnett Small Business Assistance Program. Mark Farmer is an economic development manager with Gwinnett County. He helps oversee this program and joins me now with more information. Mark, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you for having me, Rose. I really appreciate it. This program that you all have, let's take our listeners through this at the Gwinnett Small Business Assistance Program. You all just rolled this out. Take our listeners through this. Sure. So on um, June 30th, we opened uh, the applications for grants and loans. There's a $20 million program here, uh, $10 million each, 10 in loans and 10 in grants. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's open to Gwinnett for-profit businesses. Um, I do get a lot of calls from nonprofits uh, to find out if they're eligible. And for this particular program, uh, they're not. Mm -hmm. Uh, There have been uh, uh, other uh, programs available for nonprofits, but this one is for uh, for for-profit only. So again, Gwinnett-based. And uh, the uh, maximum amount of the grants are $75,000 and the loans are $50,000 to $200,000. If you're uh, in business, you you have to be in business for at least a year in order to qualify for a grant and have a maximum of 200 employees. For the loan, you have to be in business for at least two years and have a maximum of 500 employees. So what we've tried to do there is set up a, uh, there's some other eligibility requirements. It's all on our website. People can read it. If they have any questions, they can contact me. Um, What we tried to do there is set up a situation that sort of um, maybe has smaller organizations that are perhaps don't have as many resources to get through this uh, COVID-19 situation, perhaps would go for a grant some of the larger businesses that are maybe have a few more resources might be more suited to a loan. So we've tried to set up a, an eligibility structure there that would sort of uh, to have two categories of fit. And Mark, this 20 million, I'm curious, where did it come from? It came from the CARES Act. Mm-hmm. It was uh, because of Gwinnett's population. Gwinnett was uh, awarded, uh, I believe the figure was uh, uh, something north of $160 million dollars and uh, to parse to these various programs. I mentioned nonprofit earlier. Uh, My piece is just a small business Mm -hmm. assistance program for the 20 million. So it came from the CARES Act. Now, since you all rolled this out, how many applications do you think you've received so far? Great question. The last time I looked, we were a little north of 200 loan applications and more than 1,200 grant applications. If you can, and I know you can't advise these small businesses, but what do you want business owners to know in terms of thinking about whether they should apply for the grant or go for the loan process? Great question. Um, and we, we've talked a lot, about that, a lot about that and thought a lot about it. And we didn't want to be too restrictive. We have a lot of faith in business owners, and I wanted them to make the decision as to what was the best program for them based on their needs. Again, uh, part of it would dictate the amount, uh, be dictated by the amount that they need. Again, the, the grants are capped at um, mm-hmm. $75,000, the loans 50000 to 200000 So if, if um, again, if, if the business looks at their needs and they need $150,000, they think, to get through the COVID crisis, then the grant is not 
um, the right solution for them, the loan would be. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, they do have to pay that back, but it's a very favorable loan, including the first nine months of the loan are forgiven. As long as they're complying with the uh, eligible uses of the grant, I'm sorry, excuse me, the loan, um, then uh, they would not have to make a payment until the 10th month. So really, a, a portion of it is like a grant. If you're just joining us, I'm joined by Mark Farmer. He's an economic development manager at Wilkinette County, and he helps oversee the program that we're talking about. It's the Gwinnett Small Business Assistance Program. And Mark, we heard so much about the complexity for those who are trying to apply with the SBA. I mean, how easy is it to apply for either the grant or the loan? Well, you've uh, you've touched a couple of times on the PPP, the, the um, Small Business Administration Program, and um, I certainly I certainly sympathize with um, the SBA rolling that program out. They had they had to do it in short order because of the crisis situation, mm-hmm. and you know I think to date it's been excess of seven hundred and fifty uh, or seven hundred billion dollars. Um, that's a tall order to roll out a program that size nationwide uh, in in the span of basically a couple of three weeks early on when they first rolled it out, um, and try to make it work for everyone across the country. So uh, when we set up this program, we wanted to try to learn from that. I, I think the last time I looked, there's been more than 20 something adjustments to the PPP. So they had to do a lot of back end uh, adjustment. And I, I'm really not surprised about that. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we set our program together, we wanted to try to learn from what had happened with the PPP, set up an eligibility structure for our program such that uh, it was fairly simple. Mm-hmm. Uh, business owners can make a decision as to which uh, solution to apply for um, and fit that to their needs. And then uh, relatively simple eligibility requirements Um, and also relatively simple uh, compliance after they've received a loan or a grant. Uh, Essentially, if you if you meet uh, uh, if you're in Gwinnett, you're a small business, um, there are a few, and again, they're listed on the website, a, mm-hmm. a few ineligible businesses. But as long as you're not one of those, you're in Gwinnett, um, you're basically eligible. And then any um, regular expenses for operating, and there are some nuances to that. I would um, refer any of our applicants to, again, our community development department for the grant and ACE for the loans to work out the details. It's fairly simple to apply and then comply. And Mark, let's get some clarity for our listeners too, because this sounds like a great program and I I can hear our listeners in Gwinnett already online, but let's get some clarity in terms of for eligibility, because with gig workers who may be incorporated or who may have an EIN under their name, are they, do they qualify? Yes, they are. That is a business. Mm -hmm. Um, I myself was one of those one time uh, many years ago. And that's, it, it is a business. It, it could be as simple as you have a home-based business, you're doing business under your own name, and you, when you file your personal tax return, you have a Schedule C, mm-hmm. uh, and money earned from a business. That is a business. And so you would be eligible for these programs. Probably more, and that, and for something like that, probably more for a grant than a loan because of the award sizes. And Mark, have you all already awarded some assistance to to folks not yet we are close and i hope to be doing that in the next few days um, we knew we were going to get um, a large amount of uh, applicants and i mentioned the numbers a moment ago 
So, and, and we knew that also would inform us in certain ways about how we might want to adjust the execution and the rollout of the awards. Mm -hmm. And so as we, as we got this pool of applications, it allowed us to go in and make a few adjustments on how we would actually execute it. And of course there is a, a due diligence period when you, when you uh, get these applications in, they come with certain documents like financial documents and um, business licenses and so forth. And so a team has to go through those mm -hmm. and make sure that the business is who they say they are, that they have a legitimate need. And, um, and so we're gearing up, I think, to make some awards uh, pretty soon. And so it sounds like it's also imperative that folks have their proper documentation already at the, at the keyboard with them. So they're not absolutely. Uh, uh, well, there, we, there is some leeway. We, uh, you know, if they, if they don't have everything exactly when they apply, we can work with them again, if they're um, moving a good faith way to pull the material together, we can work with them on that. But it is a good idea to look at the website, see what the requirements are and start pulling that together as soon as you possibly can. And we actually uh, promoted this program well before we opened it up for applications for that very mm -hmm. reason. We wanted, uh, first of all, everyone who might be eligible to know about this. And so thank you again, Rose, for doing this. Um, there's still people out there who might be unaware and this should help, but also to know what uh, materials uh, they need to pull together, mm -hmm. particularly now that we, we've established a deadline of 5 p.m. on July 24th. Um, that was another thing we were waiting to see how big the pool of applicants was before we set a deadline. So after a few days after opening the application, we saw the picture of what the, the need was, the applicant pool was, and that allowed us to go for the next steps of um, executing the program, training and training and so forth. And finally, Mark, just what is your reflection on what small businesses mean to Gwinnett County and what do you want folks to know about this, at least taking a chance and applying for either the grant or the loan? Yes, well, uh, small businesses are the backbone of the, certainly the Gwinnett economy and economies you know, across the country. And so I would say, uh, be sure to engage with us. It, it's still surprising to me that after, um, again, 10 years that I've been doing this in Gwinnett, I still meet businesses who don't know about all the great resources. In addition to our office, my help, we have regional partners. We have the Small Business Development Center at UGA Gwinnett. We have the Gwinnett Chamber. We have the SCORE organization. We've been working, even before this loan and grant program, we were working with ACE. And there are others. There are a lot of great partners out there to help entrepreneurs. And I routinely hear from them uh, that they're unaware of these. So I would say um, get assistance. It's out there. We're there to help you and we want to help you. And you think about the what this could mean also to minority-owned businesses. We also heard some criticism that a lot of minority-owned businesses were just kind of shut out of that the federal process. So you're encouraging everyone to apply. Strongly. Uh, this program, the, the loan and grant program that we're doing is open to everyone, but we are actively trying to promote this in minority communities, uh, disadvantaged businesses, and get the word out, please apply. This could be a lifeline for your business, and we want to work with you to, uh, to help you get this. I think that word is getting out. I, I, I feel like we're hearing from that community, but we can all use, always use more. And let's give that website. It's the quickest way to go to it is go to the Gwinnett County website, which is GwinnettCounty.com. Go to the economic development uh, section and see small business assistance program listed there. 
And from that page, you can see all the eligibility requirements and there are links there to go to the online application. And if you have trouble navigating that, it's fairly simple. Be, contact me, mark.farmer at gwinnettcounty.com. I'd be happy to help you. 10 million in loans, 10 million in grants. Could help a lot of people. Mark Farmer, Economic Development Manager with Gwinnett County. Mark, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for thank helping you, the small business people up there. Thank you, Russ. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash closerlook. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.